Hey, again, it's good to see. If you want to grab a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. So we have Bibles in front of you. Uh, if somebody sees the page, I'm supposed to tell you the page number. Somebody gave me a great idea to sh- always share the page number. So when you get the page number, you can just kind of yell it out. What is it? What is it? Oh, 980. I thought you said 90. And I'm like, there's no way it's 90. There's no way. It can't be. That's like Genesis. 980 in those, those Bibles in front of it, It's one of the Bibles in front of you, right? Yeah, because if it's your Bible, that doesn't help me. But one of the Bibles in front of you, we're in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and, so, and if you don't have a Bible or have that version of the Bible, please uh, take that with you. That is our gift to you. We'd hope you take it home and obviously read it and kind of allow God's Word to minister your life. All right. Hey, this morning, uh, I have to be honest, I'm nervous. Have you ever met somebody really important and you get nervous? Or maybe it's just a person, you, you, you get around them and you're nervous and you don't know why. Do you have that person in your life? For whatever reason, maybe their position, it may be they're just slick, uh, I don't know what it is. And you're around them and you get nervous. Well, when I go to Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, I'm nervous. Because see, in the Bible world, this is like, this is a big passage. You could, and I don't want to mess it up. You know what I mean? No? Okay, it's only me. But this is a, it's, it's a beautiful passage describing the nature of Jesus, who he is, his life and death, his humbling himself and becoming a man. And then the vindication of Jesus that through the cross he was vindicated, he rose again and God exalted him. And right now he is at the right hand of the God, God the Father. And one day every knee shall bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are some beautiful words. And my fear is I'm not going to do them justice. So we're going to pray in a minute. But before we do, let me just intro the theme and kind of what we're going to look at. And it may be in a different direction than you may expect. And the question is, you ready for this? Why do we fight? Why do we get in arguments? Why do those arguments escalate to the point that we begin to harm each other? And we begin to harm each other and we create divisions among ourselves. We start to evaluate each other differently. Why do we fight? Now, James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, said, we fight. He actually says, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he says, don't they come from your desires that battle Within you, you want something and don't get it. Get it. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And see, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James says the reason we fight is because of the desires within us. Well, this passage actually in Philippians chapter 2 addresses the reason that we fight. We're going to discover it's, it's the same theme that James pulls in, but Paul uses some different words. We're going to discover these words selfish, ambition, and conceit. That the cause of fighting comes out of this desire within us for selfish, ambition, and conceit. Now the odd thing is, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, it's a book of joy. And yet, every religion, every philosophy will tell you that human beings fight 
even when they have joy. That joy doesn't keep us from fighting because often what happens is whatever brings us joy, we lose sight of. And when you lose sight of what brings you joy, when you lose sight of God, it brings a vacuum, an emptiness, and that leads to fighting. And so in the beginning of this passage, what we're going to discover is going to remind us of what we have. He's going to remind us of really what we need and in some ways what we don't need. And then at the end of the passage, we're going to discover the ultimate solution. So first of all, he's going to start off by reminding us, this is what you've forgotten. Now, here's what you need. So here's what you've forgotten. Here's what you need. Here's what you don't need. And then in verse 5, we're only going to go through 1 through 5. You're going to discover the ultimate So I'm going to give you the ultimate solution on fighting. You ready for that? Yeah? Are you ready? Okay, verses 1 through 11. Let's jump in. The word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full in accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, as I confessed, uh, what a beautiful display and what it communicates and what it's intending us to see. Father, I, I feel in some ways that my words are incapable of communicating the beauty, the depth, the majesty, the mystery of what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit who is the teacher who convicts us and displays who Christ is and has come alongside us and in us and dwells in us and seals us so that we might know the truth and know it in such a way that leads to freedom and restoration. So I ask, Father, in Jesus' name, would you do a work among us this morning? As you already have, as we've sung together, would you work through us and speak, Father, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing is what we share in common. Because often when fighting happens, it's because we've lost sight of what's most important. And what's most important actually has shifted probably from something good, in a sense, to myself. It shifted from something noble to my own needs. And in verse 1, really what he's describing is what we have in common. So let's jump back into it. Because he says, so 
if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, here's something you need to see, and it's a window through which you need to see, in a sense, the entire Scripture. That before God tells us what to do, he's going to remind you of what he's done. It's really important before the imperative, which is the com- command, comes the infinitive. That's how the gr- gr- grammarians say it, I guess. Before the command comes the reminder. And so what he's saying is the focus here is not really on what we need to do. He's focusing first on what God's done. And he's simply asking the question. In some ways, you could take out the word if, and you could put in the word since. Since you have encouragement in Christ. Since you have comfort from love. Since you have unity in the spirit. Since you have, as the NIV says, tenderness and compassion. These are the things that we hold in common. But do they captivate us? Are the things that God's accomplished for you the heartbeat of your relationship with God? Are they the things that drive you back to him? Because think about it just for a moment. We're not going to go in depth on these, but do you have any encouragement? It seems almost sacrilegious to ask the question. God, do I have any encouragement from being united with Christ? I love Galatians 2.20. If you know that verse, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who's done what? Loved me. Gave himself for me. Where are the commands in that? There are none. All it's saying is this is what you have. This is who you are. In a sense, he says, you know, by faith. I live by faith. But it's it's really a description, not a command. But I live by faith in what? And the God that loved me and gave himself for me, that's joy. Do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? And it's not only just what God's done for you. Because see, what God's done for you, and we say this a lot, he wants to do through you. So what he's describing here on one hand is something God's given to us. But if we're not sharing that with each other, if you haven't showed up at Bergen Park and some point been encouraged, I understand why you'd go to another church. That's a good reason to leave. If you never come here, no one ever encourages you. No one ever loves you. There's no tenderness. There's no compassion. There's no oneness in the spirit. Because see, what God has done to us, he wants to do through us. And so he's saying, on the one hand, have you received these things from God? And then second, have these things, have they overflowed in your life to others? So let's take that second one. Do we have any encouragement from Christ, but do you have any comfort from his love? Is there any comfort that's come to us? And if you go back in, in Philippians 1 and verse 9, he actually prays that prayer. I pray that your love would abound more. And he doesn't just use one more. More and more with knowledge and depth of insight. Now realize, Paul is praying for Christians. He's praying for us. Why would we need to pray that we would know God's love more? Don't we know God's love? For God so loved the world. Gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that the door? Isn't that the breadth of God's love in my life? I just accept him. Now I'm going to get to heaven. I've got this ticket in. No, see, love is not something we simply know. It's something we have to experience. 
And the reason we have conflicts is because the depths of God's love are not as empowering and as great as the conflicts we share with others. Does that reach you? The depths of God's love. Because Paul prays in Ephesians, I want you to know how deep, wide, long, and high is the love of Christ. So four-dimensional. God's love is four-dimensional. I want you to know how deep it is, how wide, how long, and high. But see what happens. The reason I fall into conflict is the depths of God's love, the height, the width, the magnitude of God's love is smaller than my conflict with you. You tracking with me on that? At least, if, doesn't it feel that way when you're in conflict with somebody? Holy cow, what she did to me, what he did to me, how that happened, it's huge. It's, and you know what we do? We meditate on how deep and wide and long and high is your problem with me. And what happens? What comes out? What we're going to discover what comes out is this rivalry and conceit because, see, what the heart sets itself on, the attitude and the mind's going to follow. And if you're worshiping, in a sense, that conflict, that's what we're doing when you're meditating on, you're thinking about it, realizing that's what's happening in the heart, and it's going to produce something in your life. And he's saying, do we have comfort from God's love? Do we have fellowship in the Spirit? And Paul says it's the Spirit that confirms that we are the children of God. Do we have any tenderness and compassion? These are the things we should be celebrating as the church. And so what does he go on to say? Well, I love how Paul moves in this next phrase because it seems somewhat selfish for Paul, but it's actually really helpful because in verse 2 he says, actually, yeah, complete my joy. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full being in full accord and of one mind. So he says, make my joy complete. I dare you. Now what I love about this is Paul shares the heart of the Father for us. See, a good pastor, a good minister is someone that really shares the heart of the Father for you. They're not trying to get something from you, but instead, you know what they want? Your joy. Because see, what's going to bring joy in your life is is comfort from God's love, it's encouragement, it's unity in the spirit, it's tenderness and compassion, it's knowing God. See, often what we do in the Christian life is we turn it upside down. I'm doing stuff for God. I'm doing stuff for God. I'm doing stuff for God. Christianity says this is who God is. This is what he's done for you. This is what he continues to do for you. And guess what? Now you get to do stuff for God because it comes out of joy and encouragement. Look at, what, look at who my God is. It's not about me and what I need to do. It's about God and what he has done. And when that's the focus, all Paul's saying is, I want to get you to God. You know what makes his joy complete is seeing you satisfied with God. And that means as ministers, as pastors, and even as, as church members, what we should fight for in each other's lives is, is our joy. We shouldn't fight to make sure they see things the way I do, like the same music I like, read the same books I read, but that their heart is satisfied in who God is, and they are satisfied in what God has done. See, that's what the church is supposed to do. We are fighting for each other's joy. Now, the way that that joy is completed is he says, I want you to have, and he uses this word twice. He uses it in the beginning 
gosh, my page keeps changing. He uses it in the beginning, and he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and then notice at the end, he's going back to that idea of mind. Now, last week, we discovered the same idea. And last week, at the end of chapter one, he talks about having the same mind, being in one spirit, one body, because there are those who oppose you. And really, that unity is a sign to the rest of the world that Christ has come. I mean, how do people know that Christ has come, that Jesus is God? Well, in some ways, by looking at the church. You know, Jesus said, you know, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By getting your way, right? By this all men will know. But think about how we do church. What are we fighting for? By this all men will know you're my disciples. If church is my church, if it's done my way, right? No, by the way you love one another. Now, to love one another means that there's going to be some object of love other than you. Because if the objects of love are just us loving each other, it's like two porcupines getting together. It's a little prickly. There's some warmth in there, but there's a lot of pain sometimes. And so the object of love is not just me loving you. Rather, it's the same love. It's the love of the Father for me. And if I'm satisfied in the love of the Father... That love from the Father is going to flow into you. And so he's seeing, saying being of the same mind. Now, let me tell you how I think of that word, the same mind. It's not simply the word to think. When we use the word mind, we just think, okay, well, that's thoughts. You know, that's theory. But the biblical idea of thinking is also an idea that results in wisdom. You cannot think apart from those actions. That thinking, to have the same mind, means to be of the same wisdom. That your life is producing what you believe. Now, here's the way that I capture that is what is the narrative that you're living out of? Now, when you're in conflict with somebody, I'll tell you the narrative that you're living out of. He's a jerk. Right? Shouldn't she know better? I cannot believe what a victim I am, right? I cannot believe I was treated like that. That isn't a sense, a story. And, and at the center of that story is my, is my, my pain, right? isn't it? I mean, think about that. When you're really overwhelmed with anger, frustration, and you boil it down, what's at the middle of that? It's not God. Now, we sometimes want God in on our hurt, <laughs> you know, so that we have this righteous indignation, but it's often very unrighteous. You know, God understands my pain. But at the center of that story is me, and at the center of that story is, is your sin and your ugliness. Now, what would it look like to take all of that pain? Because the pain's real, but put Jesus at the center. Having the same love, having the same spirit, having tenderness and compassion. What if we change the narrative? And the narrative in your mind wasn't simply about what happened and what she did to me or what he did to me or whatever's happened to me. What if instead we looked at what we have done to God? How the very thing that you have done to me is actually probably very similar to something I've done to God. Maybe you rejected me. Well, listen, you will never reject me to the degree I've rejected God. Maybe you lied about me. Well, you've never lied about me to the degree that I've lied about God. And yet God did not give me what I deserve, but instead he sacrificed himself. And he died on the cross. What if that was our mindset? In dealing with conflicts, what was that? Was it, the gospel was our mindset when we gathered on a Sunday morning? That would change things, wouldn't it? 
That's why I think he's saying, be of one mind, and then he ends by saying, be of one mind. Allow the story of God to be your story. And that's the beautiful thing about the Christian life is God has invited us into his epic. Haven't you always want to join one of those stories? You know, be with Frodo, Sam, no? Hey, I wouldn't want to go to Mount Doom either, but... But you watch that. Don't you love those stories or whatever your story is? You, you know, you want to be Sleeping Beauty or, well, I don't know, something like that. Anyways, I'm pulling strings. But you want to enter those stories because you love the narrative. You love the sacrifice, the heroism of all those stories. Well, that's what God invites us into. It's, it's, but it's inviting us into him and being with him and going out into the world to share his story. So he's saying we need to be of one mind. Jump back again in verse 2. Not only of one mind, but the same love. And I love that word, the same love, meaning it's God's love. Jason, it's not your version of love. Because there's a truth to the fact that we can only love to the degree we've been loved. Well, he's saying, you know, Jason, you don't get to love according to how your parents loved you or how the world has loved you or how other people have loved you. The same love is I want you to love according to the way God has loved you. And the reality is that's, that's something all of us share in common. Because he described in verse 1, right? Verse 1 wasn't knowledge, it was experience. I don't know if you caught that. When you're going through verse 1, you shouldn't be thinking, oh, yes, intellectually, I have the same love, the same... He's saying these are things that compassion, love, tenderness, these are things we've experienced. And if we're going to be of the same mind, meaning when we walk into a situation, we have the same story, God's at the center... We also have to express the same love. And as John says, God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that we might, ready for this, live through him. Isn't that what he's describing? Is that the love that God has sent Jesus in us, he also wants to work through us. So we're supposed to have the same story, share the same love. And then he says, be of one accord, which means be in harmony. And then finally, he ends again by saying, having one mind. So this is what we need. One, we need to be reminded of what God has done. And then we need to really set ourselves in the unity we have through what God has done. Now, here's what messes your life up. It's verse 3. I saw all of you look down. I like that. I got to find that out. What's messing my life up? This is what causes problems. Notice, do nothing. So here's the, what we don't need. We talked about what we share, what we need, what we don't need. He says, do nothing out of rivalry, some say selfish ambition, I think the NIV does, or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So rivalry, selfish ambition. There are those who have to fight to live. Now, we see that in the world. There are those today, I think in the Bahamas, you know, there are those that are fighting to live, and you just feel the suffering and feel the difficulty. And I don't know how we can get involved in that, but if you have ideas, please come and talk to us. But there are those right now that are fighting to live, but rivalry means they live to fight. And that's the essence of sin, really, is to fight for what is myself, it's that spirit within us. And here's the problem with rivalry. Uh, I can't get that word out. It keeps you from the truth. When you're fighting for yourself, you're not going to see what you're really facing. It's spiritual blindness, right? 
you know, we think we know what's happened. We think we know the story. We think you, we know what she did or he did. We, we think we know what the issues are, but we don't. Because as soon as the heart, the human being comes involved, as soon as hurt comes in, you cannot see well. You will not see through the truth. You will see through what you want or what you think you need. Does that make sense? Rivalry is that spirit of fight. And I get that way too. I mean, and I will say stupid stuff. And I will fight for foolish things. You know, and you hear yourself say it, and later on you're like, gosh, I sound like such a dork. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe that's important to me. And when you think about it, it's just coming out of that place of brokenness in your life, but it's this rivalry. And now here's the, the powerful word. It's this word conceit. And what you'll find in every chance translation, uh, basically these words are all translated differently because they have fat meanings. You know what I mean? I think the NIV translates this word conceit, vain conceit. If you're going old school on me, King James, it says empty glory, vain glory. And that's the original word in the Greek. It's this word keno, it's K-E-N-O, kinesiology, you know, um, all that stuff, uh, doxa, which means glory. See, vain conceit is an empty glory. The problem with humanity is we are starved for glory and we don't know where to look. What was Moses' prayer? Show me the money. No, sorry. It just hit me. Show me, you'll remember it now. Show me your glory. Remember that? You, you were there. I think it's Exodus 33, show me your glory. Why? Because if I could just see the glory of God, I'd be satisfied even though I'm not satisfied. What does that mean? Paul's in a ditch. His life is in a ditch. He's in prison. We learned last week, it says that they were, the Philippian church was being opposed. He says, don't be afraid of those who are opposing you. There were challenges that they were facing. What they need to see, what we need to see is the glory of God. When we do not see the glory of God and we are not filled with the glory of God, we will be filled with some glory and it will be a keno, keno, doxa glory, an empty glory, which means we will chase after the wrong things. We will be filled with the wrong things. The idea of glory in the Bible means simply weight. When you think of God, think he's the biggest. <laughs> he's weighty. He's heavy. He has mass. When his mass comes upon you, it overwhelms you, doesn't it? Maybe you've been in a prayer time and had those experiences where the glory of God came over you. And it wasn't like all your problems were solved, but in a sense, all your problems were solved. <laughs> it's this weird sense of God's coming over me. And his weightiness has brought a new perspective to my life because he is heavy. When you're in conflict, isn't it heavy? Isn't it weighty? It has mass, and it seems to matter. He's saying you need to get in the presence of something that really matters. Does it really matter? Remember in chapter 1, Paul was talking about people that preach Christ that of envy and rivalry? And then he uses this word in the Greek, tiskar. What does it matter? When you're in the face of God, when you are in the glory of God and you sense his glory and his weight, you're going to find out the things we chase after, they don't matter. 
The problem with our heart is we're chasing after empty glory. The only thing that will fill us is the glory of God. Do you see that? And all of Scripture, and really the story of the gospel, is trying to show you the beauty of God's glory and saying you can be satisfied. Listen, Jason, you can be satisfied in this. It's enough. Now, what does that do? So this is what we don't need, right? We don't need rivalry. We don't need vain conceit. So we're going to get to the ultimate solution. I promised you the ultimate solution. And the ultimate solution, it's coming, okay? So he goes on to say in verse, uh, verse 3, So nothing out of envy, rivalry, but in humility, meekness, count others more significant yourselves. We're going to get back to this. Let each of you not, verse 4, look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's, here's the ultimate solution. Have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which, notice, it's yours. So there's something we have, but we need to, the word is appropriate. We need to utilize. We need to live out of. And it's the mind of Christ. So here's the solution. The solution is twofold. The solution God has given us to have the fullness of God's glory, not to find it into divisions, but to walk in unity, there is an external reality that results in internal reality. The solution is external, but it becomes internal. The internal is having the mind of Christ. Now, the question is, how do I get it? Okay, I, I, it says it's yours, but why is it yours? Well, that's where the rest of this passage is going to come. In verses 6 through 11, and we don't have time today to get into it. Next week, I'm going to do my best. I'm afraid next week. i got to walk through this passage. It's huge. It, it is. You didn't know that. It's big. But anyways, next week, we're going to look at that. And essentially, what he's going to say, and this is the beauty of this text, he's going to basically tell you Jesus emptied his glory. Remember what our problem was? We're chasing after empty glories. Well, Jesus was of the very nature of God, which means he had the glory. He had the fullness of God's glory. And he says, and if you go back to John chapter 17, he says, Father, I've given them the glory that you have given me. He emptied himself. Now, that same word, empty, right, is that word, keno, empty. We have empty glory. We're trying to fill ourselves with broken glory. Jesus, who is of the very nature of God, emptied himself on the cross so that empty glory might be replaced with God's glory. That's poetry right there. That's good, guys. Go to seminary to learn that right there. Do you, do you see what he's saying? The beauty of this passage is he's saying that we are running after this empty glory, right? We're looking at the world. We're look, even at each other. We cannot satisfy that. Only the person of God can do that. We're trying to fill ourselves with empty glory. But Jesus, who truly had the glory of God on the cross, emptied himself. Why? So that we could be satisfied in the glory of God. And yet, as Christians, we're still running after empty glory. That's the external reality. The external reality is that Jesus himself humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then God brought him to vindication. God raised him up. God allowed through Christ for us to see the fullness of the glory of God. See, there is something that can only happen inside of you because it has happened outside of us. And here's the truth. What happened to Jesus is our worst nightmare. There's a place in Matthew chapter 7. It's kind of a scary passage, but there are people that are coming to Jesus and they're saying, hey, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And you know what he says? I didn't know you. 
What is the fear of mankind? It's to not be known. It's to not matter. Think of the decisions you make. Isn't it? Think of our sin. I want to matter. I want to be weighty. And so we use rivalry, selfish ambition to matter. The essence of hell is to not be known by God. Because what does that mean? I don't matter. And the truth is it's only in God's presence that we truly matter. We truly become who we were created to be. Not those that are bringing glory to ourselves by what we've done, but those who have experienced and received the glory of God through what Jesus has. Did you see that picture? It's only when we see what Jesus has done outside of us that that mindset, because here's the truth, here's the command, we gotta follow him. And to follow Jesus means to allow the story of your life, the story of the gospel and the story of what Christ has done to be a story that impacts the lives of others. Which means you need to pour out your life to pour out your matter for those to whom people that really don't matter to you. Does that make sense? There's people in your life that don't matter. They can't do anything for you. They disagree with you on just about every issue. They're ugly to you. But you know what? Isaiah said this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. What is that? No glory. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. Men said to Jesus, I don't know you. Jesus Christ superstar, that ring of name. You see that? They redid that a couple months ago. Pilate looks at Jesus and he's supposed to, he's, he's excited, right? Because he wants to see this Jesus guy. And in this this musical, he says, oh, this Jesus, oh, oh, so this is Jesus Christ. I'm really quite surprised you look so small, not a king at all. What's he saying? There was no glory. Mankind said, I don't know you. But here's the worst. God said, I don't know you. On the cross, Jesus said, what, my God? My God, I don't matter. The thing we fear, Jesus willingly entered into. And he poured out his glory. Why? So that you could suddenly say, I matter to God. I matter. For God so loved me that he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to rescue the world. It's only when we see that we matter in God's presence and we are filled with the very thing that matters that allows us to go out and say, you know what, I really know, I know what matters. And I can be an agent of what matters in the world. Meaning you don't have to agree with me for me to love you. You don't have to be my political party. You don't have to be my color. You don't have to be my socioeconomic status because the truth is everyone's created in the image of God. They all matter. But in Christ, they truly find out the depths of how they matter. Do you see that? You know, church, if we could just even allow verse 1 into our heart a little bit, that would change everything. But if we can allow verses five, 6 and all the way, and hopefully this week, spend some time in that, just reading those verses 
But if we allow the fullness of God's glory to dwell in us, to truly dwell in us, to satisfy us, that is the agent that goes out into the world and changes the world. But you know where it needs to start is we need to be the change in us to be the change outside of us, which means there's something in your life that matters too much. And God's just saying to you, Jason, it doesn't matter. I don't know what it is for you, but would you this morning just take that step of faith, which is called repentance and faith. Father, forgive me for looking at. Forgive me for setting my heart on. Allow me to have the mind of Christ. Allow me to see what you've done for me. And then just allow the fullness of who God is to begin to change, to heal, to restructure your mind and your heart so that, so that he begins to work. Did you see that? If we could walk in that, that's, that's what worship is. It's not about us and what we can do. It's about what God has done and who he is and allowing the fullness of him to now work through us. Let me pray for us. Father, could we, I think with the same fear as Moses, uh, maybe the same boldness, even not even understanding what we're asking, but say, Father, show me your glory. I thank you, Father, that the reason you sent Jesus was so that we could see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You've sent us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit loves to say, look at Jesus. Look at my son. Look at his beauty. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his heart. Look at his love, his holiness. We have everything we need for life and godliness, but we are not, Father, so often captivated by it, allowing our minds to be saturated in it. We're not worshiping in it, but we're allowing the junk of the world to take center stage. And so we demote it right now. Father, whatever we need to demote in our hearts today, I ask through the power of the Spirit, you'd convict us. Just say, Father, forgive me for making this too important. It matters in that it, it's hurt me and that healing has to take place. But ultimately, eternally, it doesn't matter in the, in the light of who you are. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, would you, would you heal those broken places as we confess our sin? And, Father, as we confess our brokenness, as we confess our broken vision of life, Lord, would you restore us as we set our eyes on the fullness of who you are. And, Father, this morning, I, I pray for anyone that doesn't, doesn't know you and doesn't realize that the gospel's good news, and it simply means that by faith we, are, we call out to the Father, accept me on the basis of Christ, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I thank you that he died for my sins. I thank you that he is resurrected and the power that resurrected Christ is in me now. And so we simply say, Father, forgive me and accept me on the basis of Jesus and Jesus alone. And when we do, Father, you come in, you adopt us as the children of God. And I pray for anyone today that needs to take that step. And maybe this morning we need to celebrate just by coming forward and receiving communion during this last song. It's just a, a sign, a seal that, that we've left these things behind. Father, work in us this morning. Guide us in the direction you want us to go. In Jesus' name we pray.